Um, Psalm 49, I'll begin there in verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of a lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts, Selah. Like sheep, they are appointed for shale. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their forms shall be consumed in Sheol, with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. So the psalm, this is, as I said, the final. It's actually Psalm 86. Is the next time we'll see a psalm of the sons of Korah. So this is, there's been seven in a row, and we won't see another one till Psalm 86. And the occasion is, it, this is really a psalm without any historical background at all. There's, I didn't even read any guesses. And the reason why is it becomes very obvious as we read this psalm that this is within the genre of psalms that are also proverbs or wisdom psalms or instruction psalms that really have teaching at the center. They don't necessarily speak to a historical occasion, but something really that transcends any time capsule. This is a, this is a historical truth for all ages, for all people to learn and to know. These are, this is wisdom. This is wisdom from God. If it's, if it's in the wisdom category in Scripture, then this is God's wisdom that we are learning tonight in this psalm. But it's set to music, and that's something that I think is important. As we think about music, I mean, I was thinking about this as I was putting this sermon together, is how powerful is music? Music is so profoundly powerful. And we know that it's powerful, and some of the doctrine that we grasp uh, as young children is taught to us through music. You, you, set, you set words, teaching, instruction, truth to music, and that's stuff you don't forget easily. And I, I find it fascinating that that's not something that we contrive to do on our own, but God is in his word, uh, demonstrated that that's a wise way to teach. These psalms were sung by the children of Israel. These, this is a wisdom that was sung by them, and certainly it rang true in their hearts as they, as they sung this together. 
the theme of this song is, is, is that all mankind, in, regra- in regards to uh, no, exclu- no uh, exceptions, all mankind will give an account. Uh, the psalm instructs all mankind in regards to the grounds of hope. It agrees and illustrates this proverb, Proverbs 11.4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but, the righteous, but righteousness delivers from death. That's the theme of the psalm. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. First this evening, Psalm 1 through, uh, 49, 1 through 4, verses 1 through 4, attention class. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Here's a situation in Scripture where all means everyone without exclusion. All means all, as my pastor used to say, but really it does mean all. I mean, it's very plain here. All inhabitants of the world, both high and low, low and high, rich and poor together. But the stress is really upon those designations. Those who have power and those who lack power, those who have wealth and those who lack it. He's trying to speak to everyone and, and so it's not just a, a wealth issue or a wealthy issue. It's also for the poor to hear this wisdom. But it concerns those uh, parameters, low and high, rich and poor together. And we'll see why that is as we go along. The stress in the psalm is laid upon the wealth and power of the people uh, in it, the, the players, the actors in it. Uh, In fact, as we come to this next point, point number two, wisdom's certain answer to oppression, in verse five, it it very clearly, the the psalm begins to instruct explicitly the wise, but he's already called the poor to attention. So it's not just for the wise, or not the wise, the wealthy. He's, He's now speaking to the wealthy in verse five, from verse five on. But he's called the poor to pay attention. So there's implications here for everyone that we need to pay attention to. Wisdom's certain answer to oppression, verses 5 through 9. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat? Now, that, the, the Hebrew word cheat there it literally means heal. It, it very similar to uh, Jacob, in fact, in the Hebrew. And... Those who cheat attack, meaning cheat there has the idea of like a surprise attack. They come from behind. They, like they grab you by the heel. They grab you by the back. They surround me. These, these are people that are not fr- up front in the way they deal with you. They are manipulative. They are slanderous. They're going behind your back. They're, they, you know, in, in the context of wealth, they make deals behind, they're, you know, they're working you. And when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me, that is his oppressor and now, uh, the oppressor, and, and now they're defined. Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their, their riches. So those who cheat are those in this psalm, in this psalm, which is really a proverb psalm, those who cheat are those who trust in wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. We could say they love money. 
And, and it seems to me that there is a necessary connection there between the way they interact with those that they know. And, and here it might be other wealthy people. It's not merely just impoverished people. But, but really, the, the categories now is righteous and unrighteous. We, it begins to unfold. It's not just impoverished and wealthy people. It's righteous and unrighteous. Because this desire for money, this love for money, they trust in their wealth, they boast in the abundance of their riches, this directs their steps. This, this can be seen in the way their conduct and how they relate to people. You know, I don't know if you've ever known anybody like this. I remember meeting people and, and knowing quite well, I could tell you names, people that they view other people as leverage. Like, if, if I get to know this person, then I can, you know, I can make this happen and that, you know, and I can get, and it's not about the actual person. It's not about the actual relationship or that person made in the image of God. And as believers is, is even more so their soul, but it's just about the way I can manipulate and leverage them to get what I want. And this is somebody who's, who's love for wealth, pomp is a word we'll see later on, is at the forefront of their decision making. Now, this is why the Apostle Paul warns believers, especially those who are wealthy. He warns them in 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 9 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, and that's so important, in this present age. It's like that implies that you're not going to be rich forever. <laughs> you know, you've got it for a little while. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on, listen to this, the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In other words, he's not condemning the wealthy for being wealthy. He just says, here's the right way to view your wealth in light of truth regarding God, regarding yourselves, regarding life. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, not the uncertainty of riches, not just having riches in this present age, so that this is a fruit that they don't trust or boast in their riches, is these generosities, this sharing, these good works that they do. Uh, they show that they're not putting their hopes on riches, so that they may take hold of that which is truly and I believe by truly he means abiding life. A life that is not going to be here now and gone. Whatever God, God knows. When professed believers get this wrong, what we read in James can happen even within the church. James 2.6, but you have dishonored the poor. And I could have read further back into James there. But you have dishonored the poor. For the sake of the wealthy, they dishonored the poor. They give the wealthy the good seats, the poor were the bad, you know, the bad seats. And then James says, are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? <coughs> are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? It's not, I don't think he's talking there about rich people within the church blaspheming Christ's name. 
But I think he's meaning that if you esteem riches, this is why the poor can be guilty of this as well. They can be guilty of esteeming riches and seeing people as only a means to get ahead. And, and I think that's what he's telling, he's warning the church. If you esteem these people as better because of their wealth, you don't understand that they, in their desire to be wealthy and all of their pomp and grandeur and self-glory, see that as a means of rejecting the Lord as an excuse. And in fact, putting you to, bringing you to court, bringing you before the, the courts to oppress you. And you're doing what they're doing. You're, you're using the same principles when you start putting the wealthy in a more honorable place merely because they're wealthy. But the wisdom of this psalm hangs over those who trust in both in their wealth, whether poor or rich. There, there is a danger for those who lack to still boast and, and only desire money. You, there's two ways that we can look at this. We can look at this person who boasts in their riches as the one who is greedy or the one who is, uh, the word just left me, um, jealous or envious. The one who is envious lacks, but they still have the same value system as the one who is greedy. The one who is greedy just wants more and more and more and more. The one who is envious lacks, but wants more and more and more. Verse 7, truly no man can ransom another. Here's the wisdom. Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. Now the pit here in the Hebrew is a place where the body decomposes. That's the place where your body will rot. And the psalmist is in poetic terms teaching us that riches have no sway over the inevitability of death. They're just going to be with us for a little while, but they cannot stop the inevitable reality of death. And it's important to note that the ransom, he says here, is the ransom to be paid to God. In other words, the psalmist teaches that God determines the boundaries of mankind in relationship to death. And this, of course, comes as a judgment, in, in a sense, because all die because Adam sinned, right? So God controls that. God is in control. It's not just an accident, necessarily. We can speak about accidents from our second-hand perspective, but in God's determined will, that's not an accident, right? But here it comes certainly from God's appointment. That is, death is in God's hands. No wealth in this world can be, here, God, I'll, I'll exchange this amount of money for my life, for my ongoing life. Now, that's really important to understand. The, the psalmist teaches a profound truth. No money could satisfy, possibly satisfy, to pay a ransom the, the, the value of a human life. And, and two reasons is one that everything belongs to God already. How, what are you going to pay him with? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Are you going to give him money? It's, it's his, rightfully speaking. But also human beings are far more valuable being made in the image of God than just mere 
goods, just mere, our lives are more valuable. That's why when someone takes the life of another, murders the life of another, uh, Noah was told that life is forfeited because we are made in the image of God. The exchange is not money. You don't pay money. It's your life is forfeited. Three, death is not a debt, therefore, that man can pay. Because the justice of God demands life for a life. Money and life are not interchangeable commodities in regards to God's justice. But the psalm is careful to include all mankind in it. So we cannot imagine ourselves, if we're poor, to be okay with God just because we're poor. But we certainly can't boast in our wealth and imagine that God will give us any special treatment with regards to death. We can't buy our way out of that inevitability. Three, the inevitable understood in verses 10 through 13. For he, that is the one who cannot ransom another, verse 7, he sees that even the wise die, the fool, that is the thick-headed, and the stupid, those who have no sense, all alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Now, there's a temptation to see that these three designations might be spiritual. Oftentimes, when we see the terminology of the wise and the fool, we are talking about someone, two people with a distinction of, of spiritual quality to them and moral quality. But I don't think that's what the psalmist means here because he concludes the wise, the fool, and the stupid all die alike. It's very much like the... the the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes. How does the, wise, how does the fool die? He dies like the wise. Death is, death is no respecter in a sense of persons. Uh, it, it, it often is, and I think the point of the proverb is that there's an equality here. The wise, the fool, the stupid, these are all temporal categories. And, and all alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. And the reason why I think that they're temporal categories is we see that their end is all the same. Verse 11, their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they call lands by their own names. Isn't that an interesting picture? you, You see the poetry in this. Here, the person is laid underground in an inevitable end, no more pomp and circumstance, pomp for that person, but above ground, the lands are still named after him. It, it's, it, there's just this category of, uh, of uh, poetic li- license in that picture in our minds. Man in his pomp, and there's that word pomp, and that really can be translated honor, but here it's just puffed up it's there's nothing of substance to it if it's only temporal man in his pomp be they wise foolish and stupid or stupid will not remain that means he is calling in a sense he is saying those great things we have in this world if you boast in those things it's just meaningless it's just pomp He will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. 
Verse 13, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. You see, it's not about having money or not. It's about where your confidence is, where your trust is, where your faith is, where your hope is. If you're righteous in your perspective of your goods or not, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. The riches of this age, Paul would say, don't trust in it, don't hope in it. So wise cannot be spiritually wise here. Everybody is in the same category. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. That phrase, that last clause there, makes me think of the great kingdoms and how we honor our heroes and we make statues. And Nowadays, I think we, we pride ourselves. We think, well, now we really can archive things. Not, I mean, much better than the past could. You know, we can really make our lives count. We could be regarded in the annals of history, you know, now we have all these abilities to archive things and supercomputers and everything like that. And, and I think the, the psalmist will say, yeah, but what does it matter? You're, you're in the grave, you know? And, and his point really can be taken further because he's going to talk about Sheol quite a, quite a bit here. And Sheol, as we'll get to that, is a place not you're you're not just not there sheol is a place where where there's a division between you and your creator in the old testament but i but it it makes me think of in our day in my lifetime i remember growing up when i was the kid's age here thinking man we're the greatest nation in the world <laughs> like i mean who could possibly destroy us how could we possibly fall i mean we i saw i was alive when the berlin wall fell i saw that wall fell which you know is really a paradigm shift the whole east had seemingly fallen communism was done right i mean russia was no more this great communist nation our enemy had seemingly folded and the Cold War had ended, and who's going to challenge us now? You know, I remember seeing Desert Storm when we fought Iraq, and we just wiped the floor with them. I thought, man, this is the fourth greatest army in the world, and we just destroyed them. And in 2020, we were burning our own streets down. I mean, billions and billions of dollars destroying our own cities. Uh, tearing statues down of our founders. History is now taught in most schools in our country that would say that our founders should not be revered. We're pulling our own history down in our country. And certainly they're sinners. I, it's, and so I, I just say that as an illustration to say, man, I, I can now see that our nation is not going to last very long if God wills. Uh, I already see that the measure of immorality, the implosion that's happening right now doesn't give me a whole lot of confidence at this stage in my life how long our nation will last. And it, it makes me see this text in a much more honest way. We can talk about grandeur and greatness, but who in a thousand years of Christ tarries is going to think highly of George Washington at all? You know, I, it is part of the reality that mankind in our 
great esteem of even others is not going to last because there is a temporal uh, inevitability in this life. To imagine that our times will last forever, ISIS, seven years ago, was destroying artifacts for, that were thousands of years old. Gone forever. They lasted thousands of years, and they're gone now. Our times will not last forever on this earth. The great ones will remain figures, will not remain great figures, figures of greatness forever. But the reality of this psalm is not that we just look at those things, the greatness or the non-greatness. Like I said, it, it has to... It, it has to do more so with the recentering of our values. What is most important? What are we going to uphold? What are we going to boast in? There's two inevitable ends, verses 14 and 15. Speak about them. Like sheep, and this is really the crux of the psalm. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Who is they? It's not the wealthy. It's not the poor merely. It's those who trust in Wealth, those who have this confident boast in their greatness, those who are not trusting in the Lord, essentially. Death shall be their shepherd. Isn't that something? Instead of the Lord is my shepherd, death shall be my shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. You mean there's a lasting quality now in this psalm. There's something that abides. There's something that continues. The upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in shield. That's their body, their human form. With no place to dwell. And this is where I say in verse 15 again, but God will ransom my soul from the power of shield. And here's the difference. He will receive me. The difference between the inevitability, the vanity, the uselessness of boasting in ourselves, which leads to death, the grave, decomposition, shield, being separated from God, is that when we trust in God, he is able to ransom us. He will receive us. And the difference is, is that means there will be a mourning. Uh, scholars, they look at this and they say, these are, they, these are such poetic words that they struggle to say, oh, is he speaking about the resurrection? I think as Christians, we have to see this in light of the resurrection. We lose nothing. If we have nothing in this world, nothing we boast of in this world, and we have the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that God has ransomed our soul. How do we come to this place where we are the upright who rule over those who trust and boast in their wealth and their riches and their pomp? How do we come to that place? Well, he says, God ransoms my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Well, how has he done that? Well, it says here that there's two realities. There's Death and separation from God and Sheol for those who are not ransomed. And the second is reception from God. God will receive us and resurrection for those he ransoms. A mourning. And we know exactly how this happened. It happened because, and this is so profound, I think, because 
Isaiah 53:7-11 describes the suffering servant as standing in our place with regards to death. He took on the vanity of it. He he took on Sheol so that we could be redeemed. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. This is the upright. This is how they're made upright. This is how they're ransomed. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Now we're talking about resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The reason we are not counted as those who boast in man or our wealth or power is because God has ransomed our lives unto himself through the death of Christ. These verses are a psalm to that end. Anything short of that, and there is no mourning, anything short of Christ and his ransom of us in our sin, his substitution and his resurrection, anything short of that, leads us to an end. And the psalmist is saying that's not the case for the upright. God has ransomed our lives unto himself through the death of Christ. And these verses, as I said, they're the crux of this psalm. And this is possible for the psalmist and only for us through Christ to have this confidence. It's not just possible. It is what the Christian hope is. It is what our boast is. We will not boast in money. You know, money, when Jesus talks about it, he talks about it often as the alternative to faith in him. You cannot serve two masters. You will either love one or despise the other. And the word he uses there, mammon in the King James, is money. You either serve God or money. And I really do think in this psalm, money is a, is, is a substitute for trusting in the Lord, as it often is. Uh, I mean, if somebody is beholden to money as their God, then God is not their God. And I really think that if we got to the bottom of what the proverb, what the wisdom is here is that this is describing those who seek a substitute for God in riches. Now, there is encouragement for the oppressed in this psalm because oftentimes, as we read in James, the rich men do oppress you. Right now, we're living in a society where the top Fortune 500 companies are all flying red or rainbow flags. I don't know if you've noticed that. That probably will have some bearing on the way that we live our lives. They're the wealthiest people in the world, I don't see a lot of them saying no to the secularist 
satanic agenda that we see around us. A lot of them are buying into it because a lot of them are in the business because they do worship money. Wherever the money leads, it used to be Christianity was a way to benefit you know, your business. If you put a Christian stamp on or appease the Christian, I, it's not so much that way anymore, is it? And so don't be surprised when the, the earthly value of this wisdom comes to your door. Oh, Sean, you, you're not for LGBTQ plus with your business? Oh, you can go, you know, we'll, we'll find somebody else. I mean, it's possible. I'm not saying we shouldn't do business for LGBTQ people. We have, we're in the world. We, we have to live among the world. Jesus or Paul says, I don't say that you should go out of the world, you know, not even eating with them. He says, we, we have to rub shoulders with sinners to bring them the gospel. We don't like sin like them. We don't pursue sin with them. We don't support them in their sin, but we are going to rub shoulders. We're going to work for them. We're going to work with, with them. We are going to be helping their flat tire on the side of the road, you know? That's, that's the world we're called to live in, and we're going to love them like Christ loved them. But we're going to love them enough to call them to repentance and to faith in Christ. But he says here, be not afraid of them, verses 16 through 20. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. And this is why in the Psalms someone might be tempted to fear, verse 5 and 6, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and the boast of the abundance of their riches. From here he reiterates much of what he's already said in the Psalm. And so the, the point is, when people become rich and the glory of their house increases, he, he's saying these are the people that are, are the cheaters, they're the ones that are grabbing at your heels. When they increase, don't be afraid. This is not just saying if somebody you know gains wealth, don't be afraid of them, but these are your antagonists here, he's telling them. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. And then again, verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. And so, very simply, we apply this in such a way that we need to be very careful about attributing success with increase of temporal things. Meaning, how, how do you view people as valuable? Th this is one of the ways that we can look at this. Do they become valuable when they start increasing in wealth, increasing in pomp, increasing in status? Biblical faith sees success as that which rises above the things of this temporary world through Christ. Those who set their minds on riches both will be tempted to boast in them and oppress and cheat those who have not. If you boast in them, if you pursue them as your God, as the delight of your soul, you will be tempted to uh, oppress others because of them. For those who have much, a defense against setting our minds on riches since we have much, is gratitude. That's what Paul says. Be thankful. 
And gratitude also means when we, when we are grateful that we don't hold on to those things tightly. When we recognize that every good thing we have, even temporal things, come from above, we are guarded against setting the gift above the giver of the gift, God. And as I said, this correlates with charity. Paul says in 1 Timothy, as I read, 18 through 19, chapter 6, they are to do good, the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for future. This is the fruit that they don't trust and boast in their riches, is that they are giving. Now, <clears throat> that's not all giving is. I see a lot of people nowadays, I see a lot of secular people that are very comfortable with giving. And I, and I think about that a lot. I think about that in relationship to how, uh, not in this church, in this church I, I, I see the generosity of, of believers here. But I wonder, like, sometimes why do I see people that are ungodly um, willing to be givers? Why are they giving themselves to this? And, and I, I'll just give you an illustration. There is a, a man who is really struggling with his faith a few years ago. And I found that as he was struggling with his faith, and he actually walked away uh, from the faith uh, for a time, as I found that he was doing that, he was spending more and more time in like uh, homeless shelters. More and more time doing social soup kitchens and various things like that. And, and I talked to him, and I, I believe the reason why he would do those things is because he felt that he was being virtuous by doing them. It was a way to bolster his own ego, in a sense. Okay, I, I don't need God for me to be good. I'll just do it myself so I can feel good about myself. And I would say that that probably would explain a, a large portion of why so many in our culture still today see giving to the poor, see, uh, I would say, Christian graces as something good that they should do. I don't think we should expect that to be around forever, but I think that there is some self-satisfaction in doing that. And so I don't say this. I don't say that just giving means that we're right with God. Giving doesn't just mean that we're right with God. Paul says this should be in conjunction, coordination. It should flow from hearts that hope in God. Another thing that we ought to do is teach our children. We have four of you tonight. We should teach our children the infinitely better value of heavenly things. My dad, I remember him teaching me all the time what Christ said, what can man give in exchange for his soul? <laughs> That's Jesus. Jesus in this psalm teaching the same truth. What are you going to give in exchange for your soul? And the answer is there is not an earthly thing that you can offer up God and say, here's that car. <laughs> here's my bank account. No, no. It's Christ. It's heavenly things that we are 
taught to treasure, to store up heavenly treasure. So delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who delight in Christ will be like him. He did not count equality with God something to hold on to. He was rich and became poor for us. This is the basis for our eternal life and our view of earthly and heavenly things. It's the way that we will obey and we will follow the wisdom of this psalm. Look to Jesus.